Hello and welcome to the February 2022 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I hope you all managed to have a good break in the two months since our last episode. I'm pleased to report that I managed to have a pretty normal Christmas this year, although my New Year's Eve plans were scuppered by Omicron, so I'll be taking the Chinese approach and doing New Year in February this time round. Today's interview is all about net zero, and Jennifer O'Neill and Guy Sanfeet will be joining me for that a bit later on. But first up, here's as much pensions news from the last two months as I could squeeze in without making this podcast far too long. The pensions regulator have confirmed that the second part of the consultation on the new DB funding code has been delayed, and this will now be launched in the late summer of 2022. This had been expected in late 2021, but David Fares from TPR announced the delay in a blog just before Christmas. The main reason behind the delay is that TPR are waiting for the DWP to complete their own consultation on the draft funding and investment regulations under the Pension Schemes Act 2021. That's due in the spring, and TPR want to give themselves some time to learn from this before issuing their own consultation later in the year. Mr. Fairs confirmed that any changes introduced will be forward-looking, so only schemes with valuation dates on or after the new code's commencement date will be affected. The Pension Protection Fund has published the final version of its levy rules for the 2022-23 levy year. Most of these are in line with the draft version I talked about a couple of months ago, but there is one change that's worth noting. Now, I said before that around 82% of schemes would be seeing a reduction in their risk-based levy this year, but the actual impact could vary quite significantly by scheme. The PPF have now said that for those schemes where the risk-based levy is increasing, the increase is guaranteed not to be more than 25%. This one-off limit has been introduced in response to stakeholder and industry feedback, noting the extent to which the forced closure of businesses during the pandemic has resulted in downgrades to insolvency risk scores. If you haven't already started thinking about potential levy mitigation options, then now is the time, as the deadline for most of these is at the end of March. Also, just a quick reminder that TPR have started issuing scheme return notices, and this year there's also a separate online form for DB-only and hybrid schemes with a couple of additional questions. The relevant schemes will receive separate emails with a link to complete this, so keep an eye out for this. As last year, all schemes will have the same deadline of 31st of March to complete their scheme returns. The Work and Pensions Committee has reported on the second part of its inquiry into pension freedoms and the protection of savers. This part looked at how savers are prepared and protected to move from saving for retirement to using their pension savings. The committee took evidence in person from a number of witnesses, including our very own Matthew Ahrens, and their conclusion was that while the extra freedoms introduced in 2015 have on balance been a success, many savers need more support than they currently receive. The committee recommends that the government sets a goal of at least 60% of people to be using PensionWise or receiving paid-for advice when accessing their pension pots for the first time. And it suggests that the government should commit to a trial of automatic PensionWise guidance appointments, one when a person accesses their pension pot for the first time and another at the age of 50 before they can access their pension. The committee has also launched the third and final part of its inquiry, focusing on what more needs to be done to help people plan and save for their retirement. They've requested written evidence on matters including whether households have adequate pension savings for retirement, what advice and guidance people need when saving for retirement, and how the government should support self-employed people to save for retirement. 
Back in May last year, I told you that the trustees of three large private sector DB schemes were seeking a judicial review of the decision to align RPI with CPIH from 2030. The High Court's now granted permission for this judicial review to go ahead. The hearing is expected to take place in the summer, with the government expected to produce its defence in February. Our best guess is still that RPI will be brought into line with CPIH from 2030 and that no compensation will be paid to IndexLink guilt holders, but we'll keep an eye on this process and let you know as and when there are any further developments. Back in August, I told you that the DWP was consulting on draft regulations for collective DC schemes. They've now published their response to this consultation alongside the final regulations, and these are due to come into force from the 1st of August this year. Following on from this, TPR have launched a consultation on a new code of practice for the authorisation and supervision of CDC schemes. The draft code outlines how trustees can apply for authorisation and how TPR will assess schemes against authorisation criteria, both at the initial application stage and on an ongoing basis through continued supervision. When the final code is issued, TPR expects this to be incorporated into their single code of practice using the same modular format. This consultation will run until the 22nd of March. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. If you were listening very closely to the podcast I did with Kate Charlesley last summer, you may remember Kate touched on the move to net zero and said we'd be covering that on a future podcast. Well, it may have taken a while, but that day has finally arrived, so I'm pleased to welcome Jennifer O'Neill and Guy Sanfeet to talk in more detail about net zero. Jennifer's been on the podcast before, but just as a reminder, she's one of the senior leads in Aon's responsible investment team. Guy is a senior portfolio manager within Aon's fiduciary business with responsibility for oversight of Aon's liquid alternatives portfolios. Now, Jennifer, we hear the phrase net zero being thrown around quite a lot these days, but I wonder if you can just kick things off by giving us an idea of what net zero really means from the perspective of a pension scheme. That's right, Ricky, and it is one of those topics that is quite complex and quite nuanced. Uh, We need to think about this very carefully in the context of pension scheme investment decisions. So just taking a step back for a moment, if we think back to October of last year into November, we of course had the UK hosting COP26. uh, And as part of that, the UK, which currently holds the presidency of uh, the Conference of Parties, that's COP, uh, reiterated its commitment to net zero by 2050. So in other words, within the UK, attaining net zero uh, by that point in time. Now, From an institutional investment perspective, achieving that objective of net zero carbon emissions within a portfolio has quite a number of layers to it. So we can't expect all sectors of the economy to move at the same pace. We also can't expect all sectors of the economy to have data availability at this point in time. So for investors like pension schemes, that are looking to make a decision on when and how they achieve net zero, we need to be quite careful and thoughtful in how that's achieved. So what we will talk about today is some of the ways that investors can think about doing that, as well as what Aon's doing from our perspective to help pension schemes achieve that objective. So Guy, we've seen a few schemes making announcements about their own net zero plans in the last few months, but what's really stopping other schemes from addressing this? Yes, I believe the main reason many investors haven't committed yet to net zero is because the implementation of it can be rather daunting. 
mainly because there are many unanswered questions. Carbon data is getting more broadly available, but there are still gaps, not least the absence of reliable scope 3 emissions data. And besides the gaps in the data, there are also challenges because of the lack of universally agreed standards on how to account for carbon attached to certain instruments, such as derivatives and asset-backed securities. And then there's the lack of broadly available investment solutions to help investors achieve their net zero objectives. And all that uncertainty has led to inertia with some investors who say they need conclusive answers first before they can make a commitment. Now, the irony is that most investment decisions investors make on a day-to-day -day basis are based on partial information and use forward-looking assumptions. So we believe solving the net zero puzzle is actually no different. So what's our approach? First, just to clarify, we, we allocate to specialist managers, be that equities, fixed income or alternatives, who invest and manage money on our behalf. The first challenge is measuring our portfolio's footprint. And now rather than asking these managers to provide us with carbon data for their portfolio, because of the gaps and the absence of agreed standards, we're calculating the footprint of our portfolios ourselves. This allows us to be consistent across managers and asset classes, when, and when we need it, we can make retroactive adjustments uh, when standards or data changes or uh, when they become available. Secondly, we're actively engaging with our managers. And while some are taking the carbon footprint of the companies and countries they invest in into consideration, others do not. And if we're going to meet our decarbonization objectives, then it's vital that all managers start to explicitly take carbon into account into their investment process. So our engagement currently focus on a, focuses on education and knowledge sharing. Now, clearly, managers will have to go further than just taking carbon into account. They will have to come up with their own decarbonization plans. This may take them a bit more time than just starting to incorporate carbon into their processes. But the clock is ticking and we can't just wait until 2030 or 2050 before jumping into action. Perhaps just to, to add to that, uh, Guy mentioned there the uh, timescales uh, 2030 and 2050 being uh, important milestones there. So just to add some perspective on, on what we're seeing uh, across the, the wider market, at this stage, uh, not all clearly investors have uh, attained or, or committed to a net zero objective, but using those international frameworks and, and the milestones set out as we are doing uh, within Aon is a good place to start. So at this point in time, uh, we have uh, indication from our global perspectives on responsible investment survey that around two fifths, so uh, just over 40%, 42% of investors are intending to align their portfolios to net zero by 2050. Um, that's actually more common in the UK than it is globally. So over half of respondents uh, in the UK indicated that they would be intending to do that. But what I think is really interesting is that there is uh, quite a difference between uh, defined contribution schemes and defined benefit schemes in the way and prioritization uh, of doing this. So defined contribution schemes look to be uh, further forward, if I could put it that way, uh, in terms of committing to net zero. So we do see a bit of a, a split there. And part of the influence to that, we think, from the research that we've done, is the influence that members have on engaging with trustees and in selecting their own uh, investment choices in their investment strategy. So I think there's some interesting differences, both geographically and by investor type, in how investors are thinking about this. Right. So what approaches could investors actually use to address carbon emissions in their portfolios? Carbon offsets can be a valuable component to solving the net zero objectives, and so can be divesting 
and exclusions from the highest emitters to reduce your portfolio's carbon footprint. But ultimately, if we're all going to achieve our emissions objectives, then it is crucial to reduce those emissions. And to do that, we believe engagement is the main lever investors have. And Jennifer, Guy touched there on um, divestment. Are we seeing many schemes directly addressing the issue of fossil fuel investments through divestment? I find divestment a really interesting topic, Ricky, because it's something that is very prominent in certain sectors of the of, of the pension scheme uh, universe. For example, local government pension schemes uh, are often under pressure from um, campaign groups, from uh, from from certain uh, political perspectives around committing to a divestment objective, and that does, of course, extend to some in the corporate sector as well. However, what I would say is that whilst there are a number of pension schemes that have uh, looked at and, and are employing divestment as one of the tools that they use in their overall approach to to investment strategy, um, it is not the most common, uh, and it's it's also uh, not necessarily necessarily going to achieve uh, overall objectives. What I mean by that is that divestment can be quite binary. It can also be quite limited in terms of its effect. So, for example, I was with a scheme just last week who had conducted some analysis on their portfolio and determined that exposure to fossil fuels, so oil, gas and coal, uh, accounted for only 13% of their overall carbon emissions. So, if one were to exclude and divest from that component of the portfolio, you're still left with 87% of the portfolio's carbon emissions that are then untouched. So my perspective on this is that we need to be much more holistic uh, and thoughtful in terms of addressing the total portfolio rather than focusing narrowly on one sector or one component of that, that building block. So as Guy mentioned, engagement is a very, very powerful lever to pull. I think what we need to be mindful of that is that engagement applies across companies. It's not just restricted to uh, those in the oil gas uh, sector, for example. It does apply across industrials, uh, across uh, transport logistics, for example, across manufacturing, across utilities. These are all carbon intensive sectors. And we need to be th thinking about how those combine to create an overall portfolio's carbon emissions, which will be much greater than simply the sum of oil and gas exposure alone. So using engagement in a thoughtful way, uh, making sure that there are milestones and measurement of engagement outcomes is really important. And that's something that we support schemes to do. Uh, that's also something that schemes are required to do annually now in a public fashion through the implementation statement that schemes are required to publish, whether defined contribution or defined benefit. So engagement is really the, the preferred avenue here, uh, other than uh, divestment, which is used in a much more limited fashion by a smaller number of schemes. Yes, so we expect our investment managers to engage with the companies they invest in. Uh, and for that, we engage with them to make sure they see the importance of reducing the emissions uh, in their portfolio. Over the years, we've seen how institutional investors have set new standards for their managers when it came to areas such as increased governance, better transparency, or better fees. And managers, by and large, have responded well to those new standards. But there are always exceptions. So we may have to replace some of our investment managers to help us achieve our net zero objectives. But as a large allocator and gatekeeper for many institutional investors, Aon is very well placed to drive change and educate and make sure investors and asset managers are all aligned to help achieve our decarbonisation goals. And just for interest of, of those listening, I've just written a paper on 
the topic of fossil fuel divestment and engagement, which I hope gives some useful tools and thought points for those of you listening. Uh, so that will be made available uh, in the near future. So please do look out for that. And for those of you who may not have uh, heard it or, or were able to join the session at the time, I was delighted to be able to sit down with Mark Carney uh, for an hour just uh, at the culmination of COP26, where we touched on the issues that we've covered today, uh, not just engagement, but also thinking about net zero objective setting and how that can work in an institutional investment context. So I would encourage you uh, to listen out for that interview if you are interested in, in the hour long session. Great. Well, I'm sorry it's taken so long to get to this topic, but I'm sure our listeners will have found it worth the wait. Thanks to both of you for joining us today, and no doubt we'll be talking about this again in the future. Thanks, Ricky. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Ricky. Just a couple of points to follow up on from today's interview. So TPR published its final guidance on climate change and TCFD reporting just before Christmas. This is aimed at the trustees of schemes that are in scope for the new TCFD requirements. So for now, it's just authorised master trusts and schemes with assets over £5 billion. But this will be extended to schemes with over £1 billion of assets from October this year. And the DWP is considering rolling the rules out to smaller schemes in 2023. TPR's guidance describes what trustees need to do and report on in their annual TCFD report and it gives practical examples of ways to comply as well as details of the enforcement approach they'll be taking for any breaches. Around the same time, the Pensions Research Accountants Group also put out some guidance on TCFD reporting, so there's plenty of information out there to help schemes who are doing this for the first time. Jennifer also mentioned her recent interview with Mark Carney, and if you want to check that out, you can find the link in the show notes. Okay, that's all for today. So thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guests, Guy Sanfeet and Jennifer O'Neill. I'm off to try to track down a recording of some Big Ben bongs and fireworks for my delayed New Year's Eve party, but I'll be back with more next month. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.